0: Rather than seeking to define and live by good versus evil, let's flip the question. Let's define life instead. But to do that, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Dereschai, as we seek life. Hey there, everybody. Welcome to the Dereschai Experiment, the show where we don't just take for granted what we've heard, but rather we dig into sources to determine the truth of a matter. Now, the fact that this episode is the first winter holiday episode ever to be done by Deresh might surprise many of you. Why not do a Hanukkah special first? Well, I was raised celebrating Christmas, and the question of Christmas is one that's been on my mind for several years now. And every year I attempt to learn something more about the actual history of the holiday. The last thing I want to do is to accuse something of being pagan or including pagan influences, if it's not. And unfortunately, when people come to an understanding of the validity of Torah, there is a tendency to treat anything else as if it were pagan. I did that myself. It becomes this knee-jerk reaction that is, unfortunately, a side effect of the awakening process. You see, most people who come to the understanding of Torah as still applicable to their lives, they do so by going through what psychology calls the stages of grief. And for most of us, we get stuck in the first two stages of this process for years. So what are the stages of grief and how do they manifest in this type of life change? Well, the first stage of grief is denial and isolation. Too many people get stuck here. They've been hurt by teachers whom they've trusted in the past, then they discovered that those teachers were all too human and fallible. And when this happens, it becomes super easy to disconnect and to no longer allow anyone to be put to a position of authority over us due to the chance that we might be hurt again by someone that we've put our trust in. And so we disconnect. We isolate ourselves and we have a very hard time engaging in local relationships, especially relationships that are founded around our religious practice. And many end up in the end worshiping in isolation, and usually this is because of some perceived harm from the past, from some teachers that they disagreed with, or some minuscule difference in doctrine with others. The second stage of grief is anger, and it's at this stage that the convert, and I use that term loosely, because coming to this understanding of the Torah is not truly a conversion, but rather it's a deepening of understanding. Well, the convert begins to get angry, they begin to attack others who happen to still be in the place where they were until their eyes were opened. They look back on the things they've been told and they identify them as lies. Now, This stage usually gets masked in terminology such as righteous anger or zeal, or in positions such as watchman or prophet. The third stage of grief is in bargaining. Uh, The convert, again I use this term loosely, they begin to look back on their transition to the time before their transition. And they get stuck in thoughts of, if only I had known sooner, or if only I'd never found out. And they begin to look back on their past religious experience. Even if it was a good Christian experience, they begin to look back on it with guilt and shame for not having come to this realization sooner. The fourth stage of grief is depression, and ideas begin to flow of, what is this going to mean for me? As the anger, the isolation, and all the other stuff pours out on all of your friends, all of those closest to you, and bridges are burned with family and friends as that anger that comes out and as the the isolation takes over. After some time into this experience, we end up looking back on all that we have lost, and we get sad, and that sadness begins to border on depression. Added to this that the loss of previous holidays, holidays that once consumed our mind and were times of joy and celebration and wonder, they become evil in our eyes, and that causes the depression to even get worse. And the fifth and final stage of grief is acceptance. It's when we finally come to terms, not just with the changes we've gone through, but with our past that we were in and our reaction in the midst of this change. And once we begin to accept that and come to terms with it, it's only then that we can begin to build again. We can begin to build community, family, friends, connections to the world around us, and our own understanding of what it is that, this, that Scripture speaks of. And finally, it's at this stage that we can begin to move forward. Now, it's the first two stages of this process that I want to address in this special, as it's in these stages that we first begin to assign evil motives to any celebration that's not wholly unique to the Bible. And Christmas definitely falls into this category. Add to this that the things that have become attached to Christmas are definitely pagan and the entire holiday simply gets dismissed. But as we're about to see, this type of conclusion may not be entirely warranted. And if we have been going around bashing others over the celebration of Christmas based on faulty information, let me ask you, how many bridges have you burned over this topic? I know that for myself, if I didn't burn bridges with my family over Christmas, there was definitely a lot of fire damage involved. And now it's necessary for me, myself, to repair that damage that I caused in my relationships with my family. And so it is in all things, it is incumbent on us to discover the truth of any matter. And then once we know the truth, to react accordingly. So let's dig into this holiday, and let's discover the truth of the matter from the historical sources. Is Christmas inherently pagan, or is the truth more complicated to that? Welcome to the Deresh Chai Christmas Special. Luke 2, 1-20 And it came to be in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus for all the world to be registered. This took place as a first registration while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all were going to be registered, each one to his own city. And Yosef also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, to Yehudah, to the city of David, which is called Beit Lechem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be registered with Miriam, who was engaged to him, being pregnant. And it came to be that while they were there, the days were filled for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him up, and laid him down in a feeding trough, because there was no room for them in the lodging place. And in the same country there were shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And look, a messenger of Hashem stood before them, and the esteem of Hashem shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. And the messenger said to them, Do not be afraid, for look, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be to all people. Because there was born to you this day, in the city of David, a Savior who is Messiah, the Master. And this shall be a sign to you, you shall find a baby wrapped up, lying in a feeding trough. And suddenly there was with the messengers a crowd of the heavenly hosts, praising Elohim and saying, "Esteemed Elohim in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. And it came to be when the messengers had gone away from them into the heaven, that the shepherds said to each other, Indeed, let us go to Beit Lechem and see this matter that has taken place, which the master has made known to us. And they came in haste and found Miriam and Yosef and the baby lying in a feeding trough. And having seen they made known the matter which was spoken to them concerning the child and all those who heard marveled at what the shepherds said to them but miriam kept all these matters considering them in her heart and the shepherds returned boasting and praising elohim for all they had heard and seen as it was spoken to them matthew chapter 2 1-12 and yeshua having been born in bethlehem of yehuda in the days of Herodus the king See, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born sovereign of the Yehudim? For we saw his star in the east and have come to do reverence to him. And Herod as the sovereign, having heard, was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And having gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Yehuda," for thus it has been written by the prophet. For you, Bethlehem, in the lands of Judah, you are by no means least among the rulers of Yehuda, For out of you shall come a ruler who shall shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, having called the magi secretly, learned exactly from them what time the star appeared, and having sent them to Bethlehem, he said, "Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring back word to me, so that I too might go and do reverence to him." And having heard the king, they went and see the star which they had seen in the east went before them until. It came and stood over where the child was. And seeing the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And coming into the house, they saw the child with Miriam, his mother, and fell down and did reverence to him. And opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream that they should not return to Herodice, they departed for their own country by another way. So, at the time of this recording, 119 Ministries and the people behind The Way documentary are about to release their new movie that's called The Christmas Question. Uh, That movie will have been out at least two days by the time that I release this episode. I want to make clear I have not seen this movie. I wanted to make this episode without seeing this movie. I have seen the videos that 119 Ministries has put out before regarding Christmas, and I've discovered that many of the claims that were laid out in their previous versions has been ill-researched. Now, this movie was to be their attempt to rectify some of these previous mistakes, and I respect 119 Ministries greatly for going back and readdressing this topic with fresh eyes. Regardless, I wanted to present my own findings alongside theirs without being influenced by their findings. So the question arises where do we begin when we attempt to discover the ancient history of Christmas? Now it's super easy to look at other holidays that existed in the first three centuries after Messiah and then to ascribe some sort of malicious intent to the origins of Christmas. I've even heard all the way back in high school that Christians adopted pagan holidays and Christianized them in an attempt to appeal to the pagans and convert them. And the fact is that if we look at the historical record, there's very little evidence to support this claim when the entire history is taken into account. Now there are two holidays that are usually said to have been the holidays that were adopted by early Christians and then morphed into Christmas. The first and the most common claim is Saturnalia. There are many scholars today who claim that Saturnalia is the source of the original Christmas, but that simply is not true. I mean, Saturnalia, it began on December 13th and lasted until December 22nd on the Roman calendar. Now, if Christmas was simply a patina that was then painted over the holiday of Saturnalia, they did an awful job of it, because they couldn't even get the dates right when they stole the holiday. Add to this that there's very little of the Saturnalia celebration that has made its way into the Christmas celebration. The only things in the Christmas tradition that align to Saturnalia in any way is the inclusion of mistletoe and the giving of gifts, and the giving of gifts is not even unique to Saturnalia. Nothing else in Christmas fits the holiday of Saturnalia. We cannot simply say that since Saturnalia is a winter holiday and Christmas is a winter holiday ipso facto, if that were the case, we could also look to Hanukkah and say that Christians stole Hanukkah. I mean, they're both winter holidays. They both feature lights, right? Hanukkah would even make more sense because there are times, such as this year, when the holidays overlap. So if Christianity stole Saturnalia to create Christmas, it was the absolute worst heist in history. Due to this, I for one, I can no longer even entertain the idea that Christmas originated from Saturnalia. It doesn't make any sense and none of the evidence fits. The second holiday that Christmas has been said to have been instituted to replace is the birthday celebration of Sol Invictus. Now, this holiday, it does have a better claim to being a pre-existent holiday that was adopted by Christianity, or better yet, by the official Roman state Christianity, simply took up what pre-existed and then turned it to their own purposes. Because the birthday of Sol Invictus was celebrated on December 25th. Now, this holiday was declared as a national holiday in Rome by Emperor Aurelian around 274, uh, that would seem to predate the earliest recorded celebration of Christmas in Rome by nearly 62 years. Now, the chronology of these events it seems to indicate that Christmas was in fact created as a later replacement to the Sol Invictus holiday. And so for a year or so, the, just the simple timing of this, it solidified for me that Christmas in fact did originate in pagan practices. But, but as I've discovered so many times in my life, the reality of a situation is never so clear-cut and dried as all that. And so we have to look to the actual sources of history and discover what they have to say on the subject. Now. I will tell you that all of the information that I'm about to impart to you, it can easily become a jumbled mess, so I'm going to do my best to lay it out in a clear and orderly manner. I may even at some point attempt to create a timeline just so we can kind of see when all of this stuff happened and where. Uh, Without further ado, I want to begin with the history of the Sol Invictus holiday. Let's look to what the historical sources themselves have to say regarding this holiday and then we can transition to the historical foundation of Christmas and compare the two. So in ancient Rome, sun worship was common. But it didn't really take off until the late 1st century. Seutonius, who is a Roman historian who died in 122. He records that after Rome burned in 64, Nero erected a statue of himself in Rome. And the statue, it was a colossus. It was 120 feet tall. Now both Suetonius and Pliny the Elder, who was a Roman philosopher and naturalist, record that Emperor Vespasian, who ruled after Nero from 69 to 79, only a decade after the Nero statue was erected, placed a sunburst crown on the head of the Nero statue, and declared the statue to be Sol, the god of the sun. Uh, Interestingly, this is where we get the name of our sun and the name of our system, the solar system. It's from the Roman name of their sun god. By the end of Vespasian's reign in 79, he had added for the first time an image of Sol to the imperial money as well. So the introduction of the Sol cult to Rome did not happen until around 80 AD. That's a good 50 years after the death of Messiah. Now, Roman sun worship faced a challenge at this time because there was an Eastern form of sun worship, namely Mithraism, that was encroaching into the Roman Empire. And so, in 158, the epithet of Invictus, or the Invincible, was added to the title for soul. And it wasn't until Emperor Commodus who ruled jointly with his father Marcus Aurelius from 177 to 180, and then who ruled alone from 180 to 192, that the title of Sol Invictus was then transferred to the Emperor, and the Emperor then became the embodiment of the Invincible Son. Now this tradition continues on and off until Emperor Elagabalus took the throne in 2.18. Now, emperor Elagabalus was raised in Syria, in the city of Emissa, and he attained the rank of high priest of the god Elagabalus, whom this emperor was named after uh, upon his death. And it was in 221 that Emperor Elagabalus enlarged the temple of Jupiter, declared it to be a temple to Sol Invictus, and declared that Sol Invictus was then to be the primary deity of Rome. A uh, Herodian, a Roman civil servant, records that it, it was declared by Emperor Elagabalus that the cult of Sol Invictus should include the rites of the Jews and Christians as well as every other religion, so that, and I quote, in order that the priesthood of Elagabalus might include the mysteries of every form of worship. Now let that sink in. In order that the priesthood of Elagabalus might include the mysteries of every form of worship. The stated goal of the Sol Invictus Quote in 2.20 was to synchronistically combine all forms of worship into one, and the stated goal was to include and incorporate both Jewish and Christian practices into the mysteries of the God Elagabalus who was also part of, and at the time, the primary embodiment of, Sol Invictus. Like I said, it gets a little bit confusing. Just hang with me here. So, Emperor Allagabalus sought to, as Herodian continues, abolish not only the religious ceremonies of the Romans, but also those of the whole world, his one wish being that the god Elagabalus should be worshipped everywhere, and this was to be accomplished through the elevation Of Sol Invictus. Now, it was this decision by the Emperor of Rome to elevate a foreign god over the Roman god Jupiter that led to Emperor Elagabalus being killed by the Praetorian Guard in 222. And this death led to the cult of Sol Invictus being suppressed worldwide for the next 50 years. So there's a 50 year span after Elagabalus where Sol Invictus' cult was barely even heard from. Now It wasn't until Emperor Aurelian, in 272, during the Battle of Emesa uh, – Emesa is the same place that Emperor Elagabalus was from he, – he saw an apparition on the field of battle. Then, upon his victory, he went into the Temple of Alagabalus and once again saw the same apparition. And it's at this point that the worship of Sol Invictus was reinstituted in Rome. Uh, Emperor Aurelian built the temple, he instituted a new priesthood, and Sol Invictus was declared to be the supreme deity of Rome. And it was in 274, two years later, that the birthday of Sol Invictus on December 25th was declared as a national holiday in Rome. Now, this is the information that causes me to slow down and ask some questions that I'd never asked before. So, sure, Christmas was not declared as an official Roman holiday supplanting the birthday of Solovictus until 62 years later in 336. But the question is, is there evidence that predates the date of 274 or even 220 when Elagabalus uh, stated that he wanted to take over other religions that points to early Christians celebrating Christmas? before that time. Now if we understand that the whole point of that Sol Invictus cult was to incorporate all celebrations of other religions, including Christianity and Judaism, and roll them all into one, then it would make a lot of sense for Emperor Rulian to take a pre-existing important date that was important to one of those other religions and to make it part of Sol Invictus worship. Uh, Perhaps it's possible that December 25th was selected as the birthday of Sol Invictus in 274 in order to take away a date that was important to the early church. In order to determine this, we have to go further, and now we have to examine the other side of the story. So now that we have this handle on Sol Invictus, let's now look to those who are called the church fathers and see what we can learn from them in regards to how early Christmas was began to be celebrated and why. So, the first thing that we have to understand is the historical context of the early church. Because the early church they found themselves with a problem. They were being rejected by Judaism and being rejected by paganism. And so, they found themselves between a rock and a hard place as they were persecuted to various degrees by both. And the church for Several centuries found themselves floundering as their old identities of Jews and pagans were stripped from them, and those who took on Christianity then became an anathema to everyone. This left the church attempting to define themselves with a unique identity in the midst of this, because they did not want to identify with the Jews, because the majority of Judaism was actively seeking to harm Christianity. Add to this that after the Jewish Bar Kokhba rebellion against Rome failed in 135, being seen as a Jew became dangerous in any Roman province. So it was determined by some that the institution of new holidays to celebrate uniquely Christian ideals were necessary so that the Christians wouldn't suffer for the rebellion that they had no part in. Also, the early church didn't want to identify as pagan. It was the pagans who were carting Christians off to be slaughtered wholesale in games for public amusement, or burning their lives as torches to light city streets, or any of a thousand other travesties and horrors were being perpetrated upon the Christian church by pagans. Now, it was into this midst that this desire to become something unique raised its head, and so one of the things that they did was they declared new holidays. Now, the fact of the matter is that the very early church, it didn't celebrate the birth of Yeshua at all. In fact, it's not until after the assassination of Emperor Commodus in 192 that Clement of Alexandria provides the earliest documentation of common thought of when it was that Yeshua was born. Clement writes about the birth of Jesus, And there are those who have determined not only the year of our Lord's birth, but also the day and they say that it took place in the twenty-eighth year of Augustus and in the twenty-fifth day of Pecon. Further, others say that he was born on the twenty-fourth or twenty-fifth of Parmuthi. Now, not one of those dates is December twenty-fifth, but one of them, the twenty-fourth of Parmuthi in the Julian calendar, matches up to January 6th on the Gregorian calendar that we use now. And surprisingly enough, January 6th is still celebrated as the birth of Jesus in the Eastern Orthodox Church and as the official celebration in Armenia. Now, This tradition of the date of the birth of Messiah still survives today in Eastern Orthodoxy, and the first record we have of that date is in 192. That's 80 years before anybody in Rome celebrated a birthday to Sol Invictus. Now, the first mention of December 25th as the birth of Jesus was made by Hippolytus. It's a contemporary of Clement. Now, when exactly the date was added to Hippolytus's work, uh, it's in the debate. There's actually a several decade window from around 2.5 to 2:35 as to when December 25th was added to Hippolytus's work. But regardless of that, it's still a good 40 years before the Sol Invictus. So how was December 25th decided upon by the Western Church to be the day of the celebration of the birth of Jesus? Well, Julius Africanus is the earliest record that we have of when this idea was first introduced. Now, While he didn't specifically state anything about the nativity itself, he records that Jesus was conceived on the anniversary of the creation of the world which he and many others believe to have been March 25th." Now, if you count nine months from March 25th, you end up on December 25th. And it was this idea that came to be the accepted view. And surprisingly enough, this thought that the date of the conception of Jesus occurred on the anniversary of the creation of the world, as well as the idea that Jesus was conceived and died on the same calendar date actually comes from Jewish thought that was prevalent in the first and second centuries. Uh, Tractate Rosh Hashanah 10b-11a through states, Rabbi Eliezer states, In Nisan the world was created. In Nisan the patriarchs were born. On Passover Isaac was born. And in Nisan they, our ancestors, will be redeemed in time to come. In Nisan the ancestors will be redeemed. Nisan in the Jewish calendar aligns with a March-April time frame, And it was an early Christian thought that Jesus was conceived on the same day that He died. Thus, Passover was the date of both Jesus' conception as well as His death. And it's Tertullian who wrote in 200 CE that the date of Jesus' death was March 25th. So all of this added together, along with the Quattrodecimen controversy of the early church, which was the controversy of when and how to celebrate the Passover, led to the adoption of December 25th as the date of the celebration of Jesus' birth. Now, each of these sources that I've just quoted predates the Sol Invictus birthday celebration by a minimum of 40 years, and in some cases, as much as 80 years before Sol Invictus took the same day. Now, what we can derive from this is that the concept of Christmas and the celebration of the birth of Jesus on December 25th is a uniquely Christian holiday. It is one that the pagan world attempted to suppress from its inception through the use of the Sol Invictus celebration in an attempt to supplant the Christian practice. And Christmas was a holiday that was created as early Christianity attempted to slice out their own identity in the world. They sought to be separate from the Jews who had taken up arms in rebellion against Rome and lost, and in doing so had become anathema to the Roman world. These same Jews who persecuted Christians and would have nothing to do with them. But they also separated from the pagan prosecutors who had put so many of their brethren to death and who had attempted everything to supplant or destroy the Christian faith in its infancy. Now, it's easy to look down on the early church for this decision to separate from everyone and to do their own thing and then to judge them for this action. But the fact is that if you're listening to my voice right now, you have likely never faced this kind of all-pervasive persecution. And so sitting in judgment of people that are in this situation is dishonest and potentially hypocritical none of us have any idea what we would do if we faced these same circumstances. Regardless, the origin of Christmas is not something that was taken from the pagan world, but it was something that was created in order to be separate from the pagan world. In its origin, at least. Now, if we examine Scripture, we can perhaps find a precedent for the declaration of new holidays in Scripture. For example, Purim was a holiday that was instituted by a Persian queen in Babylon province who just happened to be a Jew. Hanukkah in the same way was instituted by Judah Maccabees in 165 BCE, in recognition of the rededication of the temple after it was delivered from the hands of the Greeks who had defiled it in 167 BCE, two years earlier. And it's this holiday that we see Yeshua celebrating in John chapter 10. So, we have in Scripture two examples of holidays that were declared by men in order to commemorate special occasions that occurred in the history of the nation of Israel. And I would argue that the coming of the Messiah into the world is also one of those special occasions that can find precedence for its existence in Scripture. In fact, if we turn all the way back to Genesis 1 and read of the creation on day 4, in verses 14 through 16 of Genesis 1, it says, And Elohim said, Let lights come to be in the expanse of the heavens, to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for appointed times, moadim, and for days and for years, and let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens, and to give light on the earth. And it came to be so. And Elohim made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. So what? Is the stated purpose of the sun, moon, and stars according to Genesis 1? Well, it's to define day and night, and years, and signs, and appointed times, Moedim. Now this word, Moedim, that's the same word used in Leviticus 23 for the Hebrew festival days. So what do we read in Matthew 2 surrounding the birth of Yeshua? Well, Matthew 2.2, it says, Where is he who is born the king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to do reverence to him. A star is being used to mark the birth of Yeshua in such a way that foreign astrologers recognize the star as a sign of the birth of the king of the Jews. A star, a thing that was created in order to mark signs and moedim. That same word used in Leviticus 23 for the festival days. We also find evidence in Zechariah 8.19 of all places, where it says, Thus says Adonai of hosts, the fast of the fourth, and the fast of the fifth, and the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth month, are to be joy and gladness and pleasant appointed times moedim, for the house of Judah, and they shall love the truth and the peace. Uh, Zechariah is stating that the fasts in the 4th, 5th, 7th, and 10th months will be pleasant moedim for Judah who shall love truth and feasts. But there's a problem with that. Only one of those fasts, the fast in the 7th month which is Yom Kippur, is actually declared in the Torah. But those other days, days created and commemorated by men, it states, will become times of joy for those who love truth and peace." Men creating Moedim, it's something that God, if He doesn't approve of it, at least He works with it. And all of these, they point to several truths that we can grasp hold of. 1. The celebration of the coming of Messiah into the world originated as a uniquely Christian idea and practice that predated pagan attempts to incorporate the celebration into a single religion. 2. There is a case to be made for the celebration of the birth of Yeshua as a moed, an appointed time. And 3. The date of December 25th or the celebration was a uniquely Christian practice in its inception. Now with that said, there is an elephant in the room that needs to be addressed. Now, many of the practices that have been attached to Christmas over the centuries do in fact originate from pagan worship practices and pagan cultures. There's there's a difference there, and we'll get to that in just a second. So, for example, the wreath and the tree. They were adopted from Roman, Greek, and Germanic cultures. The evergreen and the wreath were symbols of victory. The wreath specifically was worn by emperors and winners of Olympic contests, as well as brides on their wedding day. A cut evergreen, as it's been used for centuries in the celebration of Christmas, was never directly part of a pagan worship practice. But it was used to honor pagans who were victorious in various ways in pagan cultures. Do you see the difference there? It was never used to celebrate the god, especially once it was cut down. It was only used to celebrate victorious humans. Now mistletoe, as I stated before, mistletoe finds its origin directly in Saturnalia. Uh, The Yule Log, the only cut-down tree of ancient origin that's made its way into the Christmas celebration, it it originated from the Norse Feast of Yule, which was the Feast of the Dead, where people honored Odin. Now, speaking of Odin, the modern iteration of Santa Claus is directly connected to Odin. Uh, Norse mythology speaks of the gods flying through the sky on animal-drawn chariots, One of Odin's favorite disguises was that of an old man with a long beard clad in a cloak and a hood or broad-brimmed hat. Odin was said to cross the skies during the nights of Yule, rewarding the good and punishing the bad. He had an eight-legged flying horse known as Sleipnir. Odin gave gifts to humankind and to those in need. And he employed elves who were referred to as Odin's men, the craftsmen. It was these same elves who created Thor's hammer in the legends. Now, what most leave out of these comparisons is that Odin was, in fact, the god of death in the underworld in Norse mythology. And when he traveled, he would travel accompanied by elves, Krampus, or other demons from the underworld. Now, I could go on with the Santa Odin comparisons, but that would be an entire teaching of itself. Um, now, some will point out that the Santa Claus originated in the celebration of St. Nicholas who was known as the Sinterklaas in Dutch. And Sinterklaas, it it translates to the saint of the children. But nearly all of the association to St. Nicholas, other than gift-giving and the use of stockings for gifts, has been taken over by the Odin myths and the modern-day Santa Claus. Now, all of this being said, there are some misconceptions that are paraded around by well-meaning people on all sides of this debate. First of all, Jeremiah 10 is not speaking of a Christmas tree. The trees that are spoken of in Jeremiah 10, they're cut down in order to be turned into an idol, to be decorated, to be carved, not simply cut down and then put into place without any kind of change. Add to this that no fertility worshiper in the ancient Near East world would cut down a tree in order to worship it, Because cutting down the tree kills the tree. Sacred groves were just that. They were groves of growing trees. The only time that the tree would be cut down and worshipped in the ancient world was if that tree was to then subsequently be shaped into the form of an idol. The only cut-down tree tradition from the ancient world that survives into modern Christmas celebration is the reeds, which we addressed earlier and the yule log, which is burned, and which I also addressed earlier. Second, Isaiah 60.13, when the prophet speaks on behalf of God and says that his house will be beautified with pine and cypress, it's not talking about cutting down trees and bringing them into the temple. This is not an allowance for Christmas trees. This is speaking of the use of pine and cypress wood in the construction of the temple as seen in 1 Kings 5-6. through ancient Judea, they had very few trees, and most of their buildings were built out of brick or rock or stone or other construction means. To have a house built of wood was unheard of. It was something only the the richest and the most exorbitant could afford. And so, when they built the temple for God, they beautified it by using wood in the construction. 3. Hosea 14.8 is not making an allowance of Christmas trees. This is a metaphor that's being used to equate the God that never changes to a tree that never changes. I mean, if we were to take this line of thought, then we could point to earlier places in the book of Hosea, namely chapters 5, 11, and 13, where Hashem is compared to a lion. Yet no one uses this verse to say that we should bring lions into our houses as recognition of an attribute of God. Now, the idea that any of these passages or any others are speaking of Christmas trees or Christmas itself is anachronistic to the core. So what is an anachronism? An anachronism is when you take a modern idea and then import it into an ancient setting, culture, or text. This is like saying that there were cars in the Bible because in the book of Acts it says they were all in one accord. Now We know this anachronism is a joke, but there are so many other anachronisms that exist in our understanding of Scripture. We don't even recognize the ones that we hold to. And so, any thought that the Bible speaks on Christmas trees is downright anachronistic, because Christmas trees did not exist until the 16th century. All other cultures that cut down trees existed in Northern Europe and not the Middle East, and the prophets were addressing Middle East issues, not Northern Europe and Scandinavian issues. So. If the idea and the date and the celebration of Christmas are uniquely Christian and not inherently pagan, but then the traditions that have been added to the holiday over the years are pagan, what is one to do? Well, for those of us who recognize the validity of Torah, the command in Deuteronomy 12 to not worship Hashem in the ways of the nations is something that needs to be considered. For many, we simply move the idea of celebration of Yeshua's birth to the festival of Sukkot in the fall. Now, Frankly, no one really knows when Yeshua was born, but the majority of evidence seems to suggest Sukkot, the time when the Word became flesh and tabernacled among men, as it says in John 1. In the case of Sukkot, there is a holiday precedent for the birth of our Messiah. But unfortunately, not many of us who do celebrate Sukkot highlight this idea. Rather, we simply make Sukkot about building forts. Add to this that nine months before Sukkot is the holiday of Hanukkah, when we, which we do see specifically mentioned in John 10, 22 through 23 With this festival occurring nine months before, this festival of lights itself becomes a celebration of the Holy Spirit, coming down to earth and kindling the light of the world in our midst. Now, for myself, I find a lot of value in this understanding and this way of celebration. But not everyone sees the world in the way that I do, including many people who do love God. Now, for many others, the choice write out the celebration and the coming of our Messiah and keep it in December has more meaning for them. And on its face, there's nothing wrong with doing this. There is a scriptural precedent for instituting such a celebration. The problem comes, in my opinion, when the celebration of our Messiah gets muddled with those pagan traditions and practices. Now, These are things that, according to Scripture, are to be avoided. Deuteronomy 12.33-31 says, Guard yourself that you are not ensnared to follow them after they are destroyed from before you, and that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods, and let me do so too? Do not do so to Adonai your God. Do not do so to Hashem your God, for every abomination which Hashem hates they have done to their gods. For they even burn their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. Now, that's Old Testament. New Testament we don't have to. Uh, how about 1 Corinthians ten eighteen through 23 Look at Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices sharers in the altar? What then do I say? That an idol is of any value? Or that which is sacrificed to idols is of any value? No, but what the nations sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not wish you to become sharers with demons. You are not able to drink the cup of the master and the cup of demons. You are not able to partake in the table of the master and in the table of demons. Do we not provoke the master to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Now all is permitted, but not all does profit all is permitted me, but not all builds up. You cannot claim to be a servant of the Messiah and then willfully invite all of the things of his enemies to have a part in your celebration and your worship of him. Taking the traditions of those who engaged in the most evil of crimes against humanity and against God will not be tolerated by God. He is a jealous God. That's part of his nature. And both the Old and the New Testament make this clear, you cannot do both. So where does the middle ground lie, the, the path of life in the midst of this muddled mess? Well, I think we can take some guidance from Luke. Now, of the Gospel authors, or the, the authors of Scripture for that matter, It's widely accepted that Luke is the only Gentile to have the honor of having his writings appear in the Bible. Luke, or Lucas, as it's in the Greek, is a Greek name, and he was a physician and a researcher, and he was sent by a Greek patron, Theopolis, to discover the truth of the stories that he had heard about Yeshua. Now, for many, we look to Jewish tradition and we recognize that Jewish tradition does not celebrate birthdays. And we also recognize that they rarely even recognize birthdays. This Jewish understanding all stems from a reading of Ecclesiastes 7.1, where it states that a good name is better than precious oil, and the day of death than the day of one's birth. But the Gentile nations' they don't operate in this way. The Gentile nations celebrate birthdays. And when we look to Scripture, the only recorded birth story in all of Scripture, what do you know, was recorded by a Gentile. And it was recorded about our Messiah. Because Gentiles care about birthdays. And so when a Gentile recorded the birth of our Messiah, the story became scripture. If this had not happened, if a Gentile voice had not been heard in the stories of our Messiah, then there's a great chance we would never have learned the circumstances surrounding our Savior's birth. Add to this that God, in His great wisdom and mercy, He created a star, a star that told foreign astrologers that a king had been born to the Jews. And in Matthew 2, when the Magi arrive in Judea, they do not ask what the star means. They know what it means. They simply ask where this king that was born could be found. God used things that they would understand, things from their own cultures, to draw these Gentiles to Him. Now, in the same way, many of us condemn Christmas as pagan. And yet, God has used Christmas to draw people to worship Him, in the same way that that star drew Gentile pagan scholars to come and to worship Him. But for those who choose to celebrate Christmas, and who then come to the knowledge of the origin of many of the traditions, it then becomes incumbent upon them to choose just how much of these traditions they choose to retain in their celebration. And when doing so, it's necessary to remember that God is a jealous God. He will not share His worship with others. So the question at this point remains for those of us who So then the question remains, at this point, for those who choose to celebrate Christmas, what traditions are left if we get rid of everything that's pagan? Well, for one, the tradition of Advent is one that remains a uniquely Christian practice. Another, the 12 days of Christmas as well. It originated in the difference between the December 25th celebration in the West and the January 6th celebration that occurred in the East, 12 days between those two days. These twelve days were then called the Twelve Days of Christmas. It was a later tradition that moved the twelve days of Christmas to align them with the Yule holiday from Norse mythology. And giving gifts? Giving gifts is not a uniquely pagan practice. In fact, we see the giving of gifts connected to Hanukkah in Numbers chapter 7. Numbers chapter 7, the word Hanukkah, which means dedication, is used four times. And in that chapter, the twelve tribes of Israel each bring gifts to the tabernacle during its dedication. And the giving of gifts, it was instituted by Esther as part of the celebration of Purim. And the fact that the Magi brought gifts to Yeshua in celebration of His birth, they all point to the giving of gifts at this time, it's not inherently pagan. Or how about lights and candles? Uh, Hanukkah is a celebration of lights. Lights and candles are not uniquely pagan. They can celebrate anything. And a loose case could be made that the wreath and the tree, while existing in pagan cultures, did not originate in pagan worship practices. You see where that comes in? And that's a, that's a fine line to walk. I, for one, I'm not comfortable walking that line, but others might. That's not for me to decide. That's for them. Other than these, I have a hard time finding any modern traditions that are attached to Christmas that did not originate from pagan worship practices or holidays. So where does that leave us? Well, choose for yourself what you will do and how you will celebrate. Choosing to celebrate Christmas does not equal a pagan practice. Christmas is a uniquely Christian holiday that, from its inception, has had pagan attempts to add their influence to the holiday. And so, in my mind, Christmas becomes a choice. I choose to celebrate the birth of the Messiah at the time of Sukkot. Others choose to celebrate the birth of Messiah at Passover. Still others choose to celebrate the birth of Messiah at Hanukkah or Christmas. This is not pagan or inherently evil. Let us all, from all sides of this argument, let us please take a step back. Let's take a deep breath and become a bit more understanding of those who are in our midst. Because after all, if we turn to Acts 15, there are only four requirements of what it takes to be led into a messianic community or into a church. Now, while one of those limitations was to refrain from idolatry, as I've just pointed out, the celebration of Christmas is not inherently idolatry. And it is unjust of any of us to claim that it is so. So, let's be patient with each other. Let's not forget the one thing that unites us. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.2, For I have resolved not to know any matter among you except Yeshua Messiah and Him crucified. For the sake of unity in the body of Messiah and for the sake of reacting in justice, can we make this same determination when it comes to Christmas. Yeshua is messiah yeshua was born on this earth and we're told about it in scripture yeshua was crucified and yeshua was raised from the dead let this be our unifying call as we dare Kai as we attempt to seek life in this world that has gone mad shalom Thank you for tuning in to Der Kai If you would like to find out more or support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. The music was provided by the Exodus Road Band. Check them out on iTunes or ExodusRoadBand.com. We'll see you again next time as we Darish Kai. as we seek life. Shalom.